It's a pleasure to be with you once again. I was with you for the Missions Festival back in uh, October, and we spent a night and a morning looking at a woman and Jesus in John chapter 4. We're going to look at another woman and Jesus this morning in Mark chapter 7, Mark the 7th chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 24. And from there he arose and, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's breadcrumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's ask God the Spirit to help us with this reading of his inspired word. Will you pray with me? God, we pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. For apart from your Spirit, we do not recognize the truth when we see it. We ask that your Spirit would enliven our hearts to believe these words. We are like Ezekiel's dry bones. We need the Spirit of God to make us live. And God, we pray that we would not simply be hearers of this word, but by your Spirit you would empower us to be doers of this word as well. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that uh, most of the children are gone, let's get into some parenting secrets. One of the things we try to teach our children is how to ask for things. When a child rushes up and says, give me something, or can I have something, what do we automatically say to them when we're trying to train them? We say, say please. Or if they say please a little too thoughtlessly or quickly, might we say, say pretty please. Because how we ask for something is often the key to whether we get what we ask for, right? And this is true not just for for children, it's true throughout life. Uh, Present this coupon and you will receive another 10% off. Asking with a coupon. Or Jack Nicholson reminded us in A Few Good Men, you have to ask me nicely. And so it's true, how we ask for something is often the key to whether we receive what we ask. But when it comes to asking God for things, we wonder the same thing. What, what is the secret formula? There, some people believe there's a secret formula. If you say the right words, God will do what you want. Uh, we're attentive to our heart attitude. We know that if we ask thoughtlessly or presumptuously, God's not likely to do something for us. <clears throat> um, 
And, and, and many times, frankly, I, we will think about what we want from God and we will decide, you know, is that something God is likely to do for me? And so we even decide whether we're going to ask or not, depending on we think, whether we think God is willing to do what we ask. Uh, well, so how we ask of God is uh, a, a big part of the asking, the how we ask. And when we see in a, a, the story we read about this woman, that she finds some way of asking that gains her the things she asks. And what we find is the key to her asking is in her asking, she shows that she understands something about the person she asks. That is, she asks of Christ what he is willing to give because in her asking, she shows that she understands who he is. So this is the lesson we want to learn from her this morning and from Jesus himself, because he's actually the master teacher orchestrating this whole affair, that when we come to God to ask, we must ask according to who he is and his promises, and in our asking, reveal that understanding. So let's let the story tell itself, and I I, I think we'll see that very thing. Like any good story, there's a setting, and the setting of this story begins in a few verses earlier. First of all, in verses 14 through 23, Jesus has a dispute or a debate with Pharisees over clean and unclean. That is, what makes somebody ceremonially or religiously acceptable before God or not. And the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus over... uh, his lack of insisting on the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And Jesus said, what makes a person clean isn't what goes into them, but what comes out of them. What makes a person unclean, rather. So Jesus is clarifying the true source of being religiously or spiritually unacceptable before God. He said, it's not what goes in, but what comes out that renders us alienated from God. The reason I mention that is because this woman... Her daughter has a demon, yes, but it's specifically called an unclean spirit. And so the debate that Jesus had in the previous story is now enacted or demonstrated or illustrated in his actions in this story. So that's part of the setting. Uh, And another part of the setting is where this story happens. It says in verse 24 that he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's modern-day Lebanon. It's on the coast. It's north of Israel. And in other words, it's a Gentile territory. And the woman is a Syrophoenician, which would be the ethnicity of that, of that region. And this is very important to understanding the interaction between Jesus and his petitioner. The city of Tyre had historically an antagonistic attitude toward Israel. Tyre was where Jezebel, the bloody queen of the Old Testament, came from. Uh, This area where Jesus is in at this point, uh, those people actually fought against the Jews during the Maccabean Revolt. If you know the story of Hanukkah and how... um, how the Maccabean family led a rebellion against imperial Rome and their oppressive ways in, in, in Judea. The, the people of this region actually fought with Rome against Israel. Not good for neighbor relations, we, we, we would uh, obviously conclude. 
And in fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he says that the Syrophoenicians were notoriously our bitterest enemies. That's what Jesus goes to this place. <laughs> it was the place where uh, Mount Carmel is located, where Elijah and prophets of Baal did battle. It was a pagan place, hostile toward the Jews, pagan in its religious outlook. And so this is where Jesus goes. And we're told it, he went into a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden. Now, this is a very curious statement, isn't it? But you'll see this several times in Mark's gospel particularly. It's what sometimes is called the messianic secret. Jesus will do a miracle and then say, but don't tell anybody what I did. But, of course, they can't keep it secret. And that's the point here. It's, it's, it's not some weird, contradictory, paradoxical, irrational thing. It is a wonderful way of saying something in literary terms. Jesus is the secret which cannot be hidden. And there's a reason for, partly a reason for this. If Jesus had announced in the very beginning of his life he was the Jewish Messiah come to overthrow all human governments and set up the kingdom of God, his would have been a very short ministry. But there's another thing involved here. It's not just that Jesus, if he openly declared himself, it might have ended quickly, but the thing about Jesus is he, he can't be understood all at once. Uh, learning to know who Christ is is something that comes by a process. And no matter how long you have been asking that question or how short you've been asking that question, the lifelong question for the seeker is this, who is Jesus Christ? And so, in, especially in the first half of Mark's gospel, who Jesus is, is like a bud opening into a full flower. And it's not until chapter 8 that he says clearly that he's going to be arrested, beaten, crucified, and rise on the third day. So, who Jesus is, is a question that must be wrestled with. And it is one that comes by effort, yes, by grace enabled grace inspired effort but we are not passive and we must answer this question our whole life long who is Jesus because he is not someone who just offers himself without effort and we can see that from the woman she wrestles with Jesus let's talk about the the protagonist protagonist then here in this story this non-Jew she's called a Canaanite actually in Matthew chapter 15 which is fair enough and we're, we're, we're given her resume in verse uh, 26. Now, the woman, first of all, you have to understand the social conventions here. A, a, a woman wouldn't simply just rush up to a particularly respected teacher, holy man or whatever, uh, just rush up in this way. Uh, I was talking to one of my former students uh, who's headed to Chad, and she was talking about some of the differences uh, between Chad and some other countries in Africa, she said, I can actually talk to a man in public in Chad because in some many traditional Muslim countries, a woman cannot speak to a man openly or uh, at least uninvited in public. But this, 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 is, this woman's a woman. <laughs> and uh, so she's, she's pressing social conventions already because women had a very low status in that society. But then we're told she was a Gentile. 
Meaning that all the promises that God had made to Israel, made to Abraham starting in Genesis 12, and the whole Old Testament tells us about the story of those promises, she was one who stood outside those promises. She had no no direct claim, no, no right to ask anything of a Jewish Messiah. A Syrophoenician, mortal enemy of the Jews. This is not getting better, is it? Her chances, this is an interview that's going downhill quickly, in human terms at least, right? By birth. You know, her circumstances, her situation, her identity, these things have all been defined from the moment she was conceived. And in that world, even as in our world today, as is often the case, birth decides everything. And so she comes with what one commentator has called this resume of demerit. Except the cover letter is her desperate plea for her daughter. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. It's, uh, it's a demon. It's a demon of a particular kind. And Mark chooses to tell us it's an unclean spirit because the subject is who can make unclean things clean? Not just who can deliver from the power of Satan, but who can make unclean things clean. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So, what is the Jewish Messiah going to do for a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth? Well, he is perhaps acting according to many people's expectations in his answer. Look at his answer. Isn't it curious? I mean, Jesus doesn't say things like this. And in fact, people struggle with this. Some, some scholars, this must have been added by some uh, you know, a bigoted Jewish influence. Uh, 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 f- feminist scholars say Jesus is a misogynist, just like every other man I've ever known. Because he says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, different world. Some of you, you shouldn't do it. You feed your dogs from the table. <laughs> and you have names for your dogs. And, and um, you dress them up. I'm, I'm the proud owner of two pugs. And uh, when people see pugs, they just say, aww. And it kind of feeds this anthropomorphizing of our dogs attributing to them to human. But this is not that world. Now, the, the word for dogs here is a, a, not a wild dog. It's a household dog. But nevertheless, the, Jesus' answer puts her in a social stratum, right? Almost racist-seeming. It's not right, he says. Not doesn't say it's not wise, or I don't feel it. It means it's not right. To throw the children's bread to dog. Now, where, where's, how does bread come in here? Well, bread has come up before in Mark's gospel. It came up in the previous chapter. Jesus was with a multitude of Jews in a desert place. And it was the end of the day. They were starving. There was no place to go. They were poor, And Jesus fed them. He fed them from a few loaves and fishes. He multiplied them in this momentous miracle. And it was even such a miracle that there were 12 baskets left over. 
And 12 baskets for Jews is pretty important. 12, 12 tribes. In other words, Jesus shows that he is the one who gives the bread from heaven. In John's gospel, he says, I am the bread of life. Here he's the bread giver in Mark chapter 6, who not only gives enough, but he gives more than enough. He gives enough to fill up the covenant people of Israel. He is Israel's Messiah. God himself. So bread's come up before. And so when Jesus says it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs, he's, he's bringing all that in. This, it's not right to give Ab- the promises God made to Abraham. It's not right to give the promises God made to Abraham to dogs. Because the Jews are Abraham's children, right? Now, lest you stumble over Jesus' statement, let me just maybe make it simple for you. Jesus is a master teacher. And a master teacher draws out a student. You know, too often, we're particularly bad about this in the seminary classroom. I'm sorry, Andrew, you can get a refund. Um, about passive learning, you know, one person talking and everybody else listening. That's not the best way to learn things uh, for many, many uh, subjects. So what, <clears throat> for an, an example from, from my own life, when my children were little, uh, they would, um, when they thought they could succeed in asking, they would ask me for a milkshake. I'm, I would make hand-dipped homemade milkshakes, and they loved those as little treats. And, and so they would come up to me and say, Daddy, make me a milkshake. And I'd say, what would I say? Say please. <laughs> but then I'd say, why should I make you a milkshake? Well, we obeyed mama today while you were away at work. Well, you're always supposed to obey mama. That's not a good reason. Think a little bit. I clean my room. You're always supposed to clean your room. In fact, you're supposed to keep it nice and neat. That's no reason to give you a milkshake. And we would work our, thre- our way through their merits. <laughs> Until they, would fi- they finally figured it out. They said, because you love us. <laughs> and they learned very quickly. They could skip all those other things, go right to that one. <laughs> you see, I made them work for it. I made them because I wanted them to understand that my benevolence was not based upon their merits, but on love. And Jesus is doing this to the woman. He's He's making her work for it. He's wanting to know, do you just want your daughter out of trouble? Or are you asking for something else? Remember he did that with the woman at the well. He said, I can give you water. If you drink, you will never be thirsty again. Give me that water, she said. Well, here, she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She accepted the designation of dog because she knew what the bread of Abraham would bring her. I mean, there are a lot of us, our dogs eat better than a lot of people in the world, don't they? To have life for her daughter... She was more than willing to accept the designation. 
But she understands something even more deep here. She understands this, that the bread God promised Abraham, the blessings of the covenant that God promised Abraham, the promise of God to bless Abraham and make his name great and through him to bless all the nations was not just a promise to Abraham, but it was a promise through Abraham for the world. Salvation is of the Jews, but not only for the Jews, but through the Jews. This is what Jesus taught the woman in John 4. That she understood that Messiah's bread was enough for the Jews, but it was also in God's purpose and plan to give it to dogs like her. And we know this. We know this, we know this for two reasons. One is because Jesus grants her request. See, she understood something about the nature of who Jesus was and what he had come to do such that he was willing to do it. But we also know this because in the next chapter, there's another feeding episode. And there are two differences between that and the first feeding miracle. One is that the next one occurs in a Gentile territory, the same area where Jesus is here now. Meaning that feeding was a feeding of a Gentile multitude. And the second reason we know that she was right is because there were seven baskets left over for the Gentiles. And if you know anything about biblical math, seven is greater than twelve. Because 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, but 7 is the number of perfection, the Sabbath number, the, 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 the number of consummation, the number of the fullness of all things, and universal and cosmic peace and restoration and fullness and blessing, and the presence of God among his people forevermore. And so when the Gentiles have seven baskets left over, they actually have more than what that, Je- that Jewish multitude did. See, this woman understood the bread. Or we can think of it this way. She got the bread because she got the bread. Who the bread was. All of her demerits, all of her resume of uh, disqualifications meant nothing in light of her comprehension of Israel's Messiah. And what does this say to us? Well, it's just plenty already uh, easily to, to, to apply, but just a couple of observations. First of all, God gives according to his promises. If we want to have a secret in, into a prayer, a secret to our prayer lives, it, it, it would be this. Ask what God has promised to give us. And that means spending our lives trying to comprehend what God has promised us. Psalm 81 is sad in many ways. It's about hard-hearted Israel continuing to, to resist and un, in their unbelief. And, and, um, and, and the psalmist there said, open wide your mouth. And I will fill it. He, he says at the end of that psalm, he says, if you would have asked me, referring to the wilderness, Israel in the wilderness, if you would have asked me, I would have given you honey from the rock. 
problem with the promises of God is we, we don't comprehend their breadth, their scope, their width, their depth. And, our, and we don't open our gospel mouths wide enough. Now, there are many things we want God to do for us, which are things which he has not promised. A lot of the things we ask of God, he may give us, but he has not promised them to us. But he has made gospel promises to us. He has promised us to reconcile to himself through the blood of Christ. He promises to invest us with a new life principle because Christ rose from the dead and he has given us the Holy Spirit. He has promised us that the Spirit will testify that we are his children. He has promised he will never leave us or forsake us. He has promised that powers and principalities and famine and hardship and sword and peril and all these things shall not separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. He has promised us Christ himself because he is our inheritance according to Paul in Ephesians. And so we need to learn to ask God according to his promises. And we will not simply have water, but we will have honey from the rock. The second thing we can learn from this woman in Jesus' instructive encounter with her is that Jesus makes dirty things clean. You think of that old Churchill story. He's drunk at a party. A woman comes up to him and says, Sir, you are drunk. And he says, Ma'am, I will be sober in the morning, but you are ugly. (laughs) But it's really not true when it comes to God's grace. Ugly things become beautiful. Stained things become spotless. And when you go over your own resume of demerit, Uh, it takes faith to believe in the forgiving God who can make unclean things clean. You know, priests couldn't do that. If somebody became leprous, they had to separate themselves from, from, from God's people and from God in the temple until their leprosy went away and they would go to the priest. Jesus did, when Jesus healed ten lepers, he sent them to the priest, remember, to show that they were now clean, but the priests couldn't make them clean. There was one in ten, happened to be a Samaritan, (laughs) who said, I'm clean. (laughs) And he went back and he thanked Jesus. Uh, No matter what is on your record, from God's point of view, he makes dirty things clean. He takes away shame. He puts his hand under the chin of someone who is downcast and ashamed and he lifts their face. This is the beauty of the ironic benediction in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. The benevolent gaze of God is met by him lifting up our countenance so we no longer hang our head in shame before the living God but we look upon him as he looks upon us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. This woman was unclean by birth. Her daughter was possessed by an unclean demon. And Jesus makes them clean. But thirdly, 
we can learn from this that Jesus confounds the morally upright. Or should I say those who see themselves as morally upright. And the reason I say that is because in the following part of this chapter, the disciples are back, back in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus says something about bread. And they said, where did he get bread? The disciples are wrestling with this bread thing. They don't understand. I mean, he's fed two multitudes. He's healed the woman's daughter. And he's been talking about bread for three chapters now. And they, Where did he get bread? Did he bring bread? And then there's a little miracle story that is, really puts the whole thing in perspective for us. It's about a blind man. And Jesus fixes up a spittle and dirt solution and puts on the man's eyes and he says, do you see? And the blind man says, sort of. I see men like trees walking. In other words, he had partial restoration of his vision, but not complete. Now, and this is a bit comical. Did Jesus just not use enough spit? You know, did he take his eye off the ball and foul it? You know, did he... Is, this, is his second attempt a mulligan? I mean, um, no, Jesus, Jesus does touch the man and heal him completely at that point. But the, you see, that man is an object lesson for the disciples. They are like that blind man who sees but yet doesn't see. And it presses again the question to us. And Mark's gospel asks this way, in the way no other gospel does. Who is Jesus? And when you give an answer, then there's maybe a pause, and then you might hear the question, who is Jesus? And that's to be our, our lifelong pursuit. To be asked, to ask ourselves over and over, who is this Jesus? Because we understand him as much as grace needs in the beginning, but we understand him more and more. The more we learn, the more we experience of life, the more we see our own need for God's grace, the more we see God's faithfulness keeping his promises. Jesus grows, not because he himself grows, but because our comprehension of God's love for us in his son grows throughout one's lifetime. So, we learn from this woman, through the great teacher Jesus, that God is ready to do all that he has promised if we understand the nature of his promises. George MacDonald was a very important uh, literary influence on C.S. Lewis. In fact, in some ways, he was uh, C.S. Lewis's literary model. George MacDonald was the son of a Scottish Presbyterian minister. And uh, he said on one occasion, he said, I never recall my father denying me anything I ever asked him. And before before you think he must have been a very, very spoiled child, he, without punctuation, continued, but I never recall asking of him anything he was not ready to give. This woman gains what she asks because she knows that Jesus is ready to give it. That the bread for Israel was the bread broken for the life of the world. And that we who were once far off, you and I, Gentiles, 
We have been brought near. This is our mother in the faith, if you will. She and the woman at the well and others. And so as we prepare ourselves to take this meal, we don't come celebrating a funeral. Communion is not a funeral. It is a feast. A feast in which we eat and drink by faith so that we commune with Christ and are strengthened in faith and strengthened to persevere in faithfulness in this life and to prepare ourselves well for the life to come. So I ask as we prepare ourselves to come to the table, would you bow your heads and join me in prayer as we pray a prayer of preparation. Heavenly Father, we come to this table aware of our unworthiness to eat at the table of the King. And yet we come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has purchased for you people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We come animated by the Spirit which Jesus and you, Father, have sent, crying out by the Spirit, Abba, Father, Receive us to your table, not because we are worthy, but because we are needy for your renewing graces in our lives. Shine the light of your word into our hearts so that we might see where we have erred and we've offended against one another and you, so that by the grace we receive in this sacrament we might be renewed and endeavor after a new obedience in this life and to live as befitting your children, and to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to declare the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So we ask, Lord, as we prepare to come, Lord, prepare us to receive your goodness. Help us to open wide our mouths. Amen.